You're making a bigger fool of yourself than I thought you would, Mr. Kane. I've got nothing to talk to you about. You're licked. Why don't Get you... Get out. If you want to see me, have the warden write me a letter. If anybody else I'd say what's going to happen to you, it'd be a lesson to you. Only you're going to need more than one lesson. You're going to get more than one lesson. Don't worry about me, Gettys. Don't worry about me! I'm Charles Foster Kane! I'm no cheap, crooked politician trying to save himself from the consequences of his crimes! Gettys! I'm going to send you to Sing Sing! Sing Sing, Gettys! Welcome to episode 70 of the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky. I'm Steve. And joining us tonight are two people making their second appearances on the podcast. The first made his debut in episode 58 when he interviewed Flight of the Navigator star Joey Kramer. He has his own great podcast, The Film Connection, and he's written many great articles for Film 89. It's our good friend Stephen Saunders. Stephen, welcome back. Thank you very much. And it's uh, it's nice to be amongst a group as opposed to uh, interviewing somebody, although that was a huge thrill for me. And I was very grateful to, to have the opportunity to chat with Joey, but uh, it's nice it's nice to be amongst friends. Mm-hmm. Now, to make things easier, I'm going to call Steve Amos Steve, and I'm going to call you Stephen, okay? I can handle that. I'll do my best. But I, I will probably trip up halfway through, and yeah, it'll all go out the window. We'll just roll with it. We'll just roll with it. And we're also joined by someone who made their debut on Film 89 way back in late 2018 on episode 20 when we celebrated the 60th anniversary of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. He's a podcasting pro, a cinephile extraordinaire, and we're very glad to have him back with us. He's joining us all the way from Philadelphia. It's Mr. Dave Eves. Dave, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be back. I know that there were a few episodes that were saying like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it never fully played out. So I'm glad <laughs> this episode. Well, 2020 happened, didn't it? It, it just it hit us and it just knocked everything for six. It, it you know, destroyed our, our schedules and our, you know, our personal lives and then our ability to everyone for, to get together and to prep and record. It's been trying times, hasn't it? Just saying that's one way to put it. Yeah. Certainly. <laughs> So, as you'll already know from the episode title, tonight we're covering one of the big ones. In many respects, it's arguably the biggest, because if there were ever a film that's been granted the acclaim of being one of the greatest, if not the greatest film of all time, then it's Orson Welles' 1941 film, Citizen Kane. And tonight we are going to discuss the making of the film, its star and director Orson Welles, who was just 24 when he made the film, and of course, we're going to give you our own thoughts and analysis of it. So, gents, when did you first discover Citizen Kane? And when you first saw it, were you aware of the kind of almost mythical level of kudos the critics had heaped on the film? I think I first saw it, unfortunately, a subject for study, um, which is the fate, I think, that has befallen this film 
for, for many, many people. I studied it in college. I can't remember exactly what aspect of it that I studied, but I definitely studied it in college. You know, it didn't have the, the life changing effect on me, which I think people almost expect to have because its reputation is so enormous. I've returned to it since then. If I'm being honest, I, I developed a preference for probably Touch of Evil is probably my favorite of Wells's films. In preparation for this, I, I did something slightly unusual. I watched a lot of films from the same period or slightly before. I think when it's put in that context, Citizen Kane stands out as something really quite extraordinary. And the more I watched it, the more clever it seemed. It's so full of interesting ideas and transitions. It's, it's incredibly complicated in, in the way that it's constructed. And so... I would say, actually, in in preparation for this this episode, uh, watching it multiple times, my, my opinion and love for the film has absolutely soared. So, you know, it, it started off as something for me that that was something heavy, something to be dealt with, and actually, I, I realise now it's something to be thoughtfully enjoyed. I would say. Yeah, I think you've hit a really good point there, Stephen. Is you know, if you look at groundbreaking films from within our lifetime. You know, and, and just outside of our lifetime, really. Films like Jaws, which is as much as I was certainly, you know, I wasn't even born, actually, uh, you know, when Jaws came out, I was born the year after. But films which, you know, and certainly Star Wars, which change the landscape of cinema. Now, we can be directly or or, or, or almost directly aware of how things changed. And, and you know, you know I, I can remember, like, you know, landmark films for me, which just came out and just blew me away you know films which had things in them which i've never seen before certainly from a visual point of view films like terminator 2 and, and jurassic park and like you say yeah it, it's important to look at other films from that era and to see how they differ from citizen kane and that only then goes to highlight what an absolutely groundbreaking film it was but what about you dave what, what were your first experiences with uh, citizen kane so when I was a teenager, I told myself, I am going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to go to film school and I'm going to watch Citizen Kane. So I went to the video store. I rented it. And it was like, yeah, this is a good movie. This is fine. This is good. I probably hadn't seen as many things from the 40s as I could have uh, at the time. And I've seen certainly a lot more now since then. I think it's very interesting going into this. It has been copied so many times. If you've watched television at any point in your life, chances are you have seen some sort of an allusion to Citizen Kane, especially if you watch something like The Simpsons, because they're constantly riffing on it. It's the kind of thing where it's such a part of the zeitgeist because it has this famous ending, uh, this famous catch of like, Rosebud, what does it mean? It's at the point now where pretty much everyone knows it. Everyone knows the structure. It doesn't feel groundbreaking anymore. So when you go back to watch it for the first time, you might go in expecting this great monumental experience and leave saying, huh, really? I personally didn't quite have that experience. I liked it. And each time I watch it, I like it even more. Yeah. And I think the more of a rich understanding you have of film industry, of film uh, history, the better it becomes too, because like, like was just mentioned, it is very different from what else is being made at the time. It has a lot more in line with what was being made in the twenties of silent film. It's so visual. It doesn't rely so heavily on dialogue. The cinematography is so expressive, so expressionistic in that sense. And it plays so well from that aspect, not just visually, storytelling-wise, the information that's being uh, showcased, and the kind of story that it's telling of this character study about one individual through the lens of all the people that he knew in his life. Again, 
may not seem groundbreaking today, but at the time, you have to respect exactly what it was doing. And also the fact this is a miracle that it even exists. I mean, Orson Welles, he's the type of person that somehow managed to get final cut for a director in a time where it was all about the producer. It was all about who's spending the money on the project, not about the guy who had the ideas. So this just stands out as kind of this uh, diamond in the rough almost. Not to say 1940s Hollywood was the rough. There's a lot of great things that come out of that time period as well. But this is really something that's special and should be regarded as such. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, um, the first time I saw it, I was a teenager, which seems to be a common um, uh, story here. Um, so and... it, it was still in the cinemas then when you saw it? <laughs> <laughs> I probably am the oldest here, but no, I'm not that old, no. No, I I was st- just I was st- um, studying film and I was just starting to look at film as an art form back in those days, in EOD days. I didn't, we didn't have access to the internet, we didn't have access to streaming. So the first place I looked to find out, you know, what films were good, what films were worth checking out was the Sight and Sound magazine, which mm. is around at the time. And I looked at the, the top 100 and I thought, well, start at the top, number one was um, Citizen Kane. A lot of those films took me a long time to track down. You know what I mean? I didn't see Tokyo Story, for example, which I think was number three at the time. I didn't see that for maybe 20 years because it was very difficult to track down. Whereas Citizen Kane was readily available. So it was one of the first films I watched. And in isolation at the time, I probably didn't get a fully appreciate it because, as um, as already Steve and, uh, and uh, Dave has already alluded to, I hadn't seen a lot of 1940s films or 1930s films at the time. I went straight in, straight to Citizen Kane. You know, the films I had seen were things that I really enjoyed when I was growing up, like the Universal Horror films. Mm. I loved those. And lots of Westerns, because my family loved Westerns. But in terms of mainstream cinema, there was a huge gap in my filming knowledge. So I swept straight to the very top. So a lot of the... You say that, you know, now you can see the influences since Citizen Kane and you can see how much the film... It stands like on top of the pyramid of of 1930s and 1940s cinema. I didn't have that at the time, so it didn't make the same impact on me. Yeah. It's only until, you know, in the most recent years, the last 10, 20 years, when I've gone back and I've watched a lot of the films from that era and you can truly appreciate how great the film is and of course as you mature you understand the themes of the film and the structure of the film and the way that it's you know the way that it's cut from you know present to past to you know mm. something that you know everybody um, elevated uh, Pulp Fiction you know when that was out in the early 90s everybody's talking about how great that was Citizen Kane did it 50 years earlier yeah yeah I can appreciate it now but yes when I first saw it I didn't fully appreciate it at all yeah I think with me I, I was quite lucky I, I had I had an upbringing where my mother and my father and my grandparents on my mother's side were all kind of big film fans. Especially with my grandparents and my mother, they were fans of what you would call you know, golden age Hollywood cinema. And growing up, I was, it wasn't given an exclusive diet of those type of films, but I was kind of, you know, I certainly wasn't against watching older films, certainly black and white films, and then especially films of the 50s and 60s. And I always remember films like The African Queen and Casablanca as being films that my grandparents and my mother would recommend me to watch. And at a reasonably young age, I watched those films. And, and certainly ones that kind of stuck with me were ones like, you know, I've mentioned before, Spartacus and Ben-Hur were two films that you know, my mum made me watch at a very young age. The Searchers was another. Uh, the African Queen and, and a few other Humphrey Bogart films. And then you know a load of, uh, God, Doris Day musicals, which my mother just <laughs> loved. 
And then my grandfather, he kind of got me into stuff like 70s disaster films. Like one of my fondest memories is, is he and I watching The Tower and Inferno for my first time. It, it was a Saturday evening. I, I was sat on the arm of his chair watching that film and, and it'll always be, you know, a, a memory that I'll cherish. But one of those films was not Citizen Kane because that was kind of it, it didn't kind of fit within the sort of either you know romantic comedy or action adventure type films that they were trying to get me into from you know the golden age so it was in probably my early 20s i first saw the film and i think going into it you know like a lot of you have alluded to it had such a status about it by that time sight and sound had already declared it the greatest film of all time and i know it's obviously swapped places with uh, vertigo a few times but it didn't have much of an impact on me i certainly appreciated the filmmaking like you know even in my early 20s i was just absolutely blown away and and that shot where when we first meet susan alexander and the the, the metal sign and when they pull the sign apart and you you go down then through the glass and, and we first meet her in a drunken state it was shots like that where i was thinking yeah this is a really well-made film but it was the story it just didn't resonate with me on the first couple of viewings and i think i came away from it with an appreciation for the film but probably if i'm honest with myself i was always of the opinion that yeah, is this really the greatest film ever made? Mm. Yeah, I'll, we'll put a pause on that thought now because I've, I've kind of got a concluding thought that follows on from that, which, which we'll come to later. But yeah, that, that's kind of like my experience with Citizen Kane, which I'm pretty sure was probably in my early 20s when I first saw it. Mm. Well, it's 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 interesting um, that your family were really into the Golden Age stuff and yet somehow you sort of, you and it sounds like they didn't fall in love with Citizen Kane. And I think one of the interesting things about it is it was made within the Golden Era, but it doesn't, do a lot of the things that the golden era films do we talked about the sort of technical aspects but on a sort of narrative aspect it doesn't it doesn't do them either no. i mean it sets up this character I, I in my sort of research i heard it referred to as a failure story rather than a success story which is highly unusual films from that period would often set up a character that has let's say a goal or something to contend with or there's a mystery to be solved yes this does have a mystery to solve, but then it sort of rejects its own mystery. Yeah, We have no idea what Kane is actually trying to achieve. Uh, we don't know whether he's a hero. We don't know whether he's a villain. In some respects, it has some conventions of the musical because of the Susan Alexander uh, story, but of course, because he tries to turn her into an opera star, but ultimately she fails and, and attempts to commit suicide. So it, it just doesn't have any of the simple, recognisable pleasures of a, of a film from the golden era. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so special, actually. And I think that's one of the reasons why when you I mean, obviously, we've talked about putting it in its context, but actually even watched outside of its context, it may not wow you, but it still seems quite modern, particularly those sort of bravura shots you're describing with the camera, you know, panning up and through the sign and all that sort of stuff. It, it, it has a wow factor even today that perhaps films from that period don't. So I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why a lot of people who come to it freshly don't get the enjoyment out of it they expect to get because it doesn't dole out its pleasures quite so easily as, as films from that period tended to. Yeah, you know, I can imagine a um, film, you know, a classic of that time is Sullivan's Travels. And mm. I can imagine a version of that film in which Sullivan is trying to make Citizen Kane instead mm. of, oh brother, we are thou. And the studios are saying, people don't want to see that. They want to see something more entertaining. They want to see something that'll take them out of their lives. They don't want to see this story about this enigmatic man who you never really re never really know. Yeah, it's like the film is completely ambivalent towards... It kind of avoids taking any sides. It, it mm. presents to you this man's life 
and the ups and downs and the ultimate downfall of it. You know, I think, you know, Mr. Thompson, the the, the reporter, he, he's us, isn't he? You, you very rarely see his face in the film. He's usually yeah. over the shoulder. It's almost like his perspective. He, yeah. He's very much the, the audience surrogate. But I think what it does is it gives us this man's life, but it doesn't give us any moral judgment on it. One of the themes of the film is puzzles, and we see later on in their relationship, like Susan is literally just whiling away her days doing puzzles. And that ultimately is what the story of Charles Foster Kane is. It's one big puzzle, which, and I think that's one of the film things that makes this film just endlessly rewatchable is the fact that you're always able to discover new things about because the film doesn't spoon feed you a story and it doesn't spoon feed you a moral and like you say Stephen you you can come to the end of the film and you can draw any number of conclusions Mm. the the central tenet of it the thing that starts all off is is his final utterance of the word rosebud and even that has got multiple meanings and it's just not only did he craft a film that from a visual point of view was completely groundbreaking but like you said Steve the storytelling which has been mimicked you know time and time again you know the 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 complete taking apart of a narrative structure and, and putting it back together in, a, in like a you know a, a jumbled up fashion albeit one that's done with complete precision is just yeah it, it's just absolutely groundbreaking but you'll even see that kind of structure mimicked perfectly like look at a velvet gold mine that is citizen kane because it's people piecing together the life of an enigmatic figure through the people that knew them at various stages of their life. Yeah. And one thing, it's been a number of years since I've rewatched Citizen Kane when I rewatched it for this. And one thing that I completely forgot is that the story is not told in a distinctly linear fashion because we are jumping around based on when these people knew Charles Foster Kane. Yeah. And that's one thing that I forgot. I almost in my brain thought, well, they made it too easy. They're telling this guy knew him at this stage, this person knew him at this stage, this person knew him at this stage. But instead, we're almost getting like half of the story each time. Then the next person adds more color and adds more to the narrative. Then the next person adds more color and more to the narrative. And you also see that we're seeing different aspects of this one person's personality based on the side of his of himself that he showed them as well. It is groundbreaking and brilliant from that aspect as well, just how you can completely break a person down like that. And really, the only words that we as the audience hear, Charles Foster Kane say for himself is Rosebud. Everything else is given to us through someone else. Yeah, it's a story about a man's life. And it starts with his death. And then, very quickly, gives us a brief rundown of his entire life. And then the film starts <laughs> proper. What a way to give exposition, yes. isn't it? <laughs> but let, let's talk about the film's opening. Because it opens with the RKO logo, which, of course, harks back to Wells' career, his beginnings in radio. Now, I don't think I've ever seen a film from this period with a title card that plays in silence without any kind of musical fanfare. And for me, this just adds hugely to the atmosphere Wells is trying to establish, and it shows that in the first actual proper frame of the film, aside from the RKO logo, that this was going to be something very special. It was this most recent viewing where it hit me. I thought, whoa, hang on, there's always a, a musical fanfare, be it a romantic one or a sinister one. There's always something accompanying a film's title card. Otherwise, it, does, it doesn't work, does it? But here, it works absolutely perfectly. And it immediately gave me the feel of a modern film. And I don't want, you know, that kind of denigrates films of the period by saying that they're somehow lesser films. But it didn't feel like something that came from that era, I think is the point I'm trying to make. I think it's like, it's almost like it's a, a, a post-French New Wave film mm. made in the 1940s. In 1940s, yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't have any credits other than Orson Welles presents Citizen Kane. Yeah. There's no there's no cast, there's none of that. And you would always see that up front. It feels a lot more like a play, which is what he knew. That, at the beginning there, almost seems like the lights go down and the curtains open. 
There's no like, hey, let's all get ready. Let's listen to the fanfare, yada, yada, yada. No, you're sitting down, curtains open, boom, you're in the middle of it. Suddenly Mm -hmm. you see this dilapidated mansion in the spookiest part of town. It really, it it does kind of grab you because it's different. And I can only imagine what that must have felt like to audiences in the 40s when they're probably just like, let's find out who's in this movie because I don't even know any of these people unless you were in the theater scene, I guess, in New York. But it doesn't even give you that. It treats it to the utmost reality because as you already mentioned, Right after this opening bit, it cuts into a newsreel. Do you think people were just like, was that the movie? What did I just see? Mm. Who's this Charles Foster King guy? It's, uh, it's <laughs> everyone said, each time you think about it, it almost like, that's another brilliant thing I never yeah. even thought of. And I'm having these like revelations just well speaking. So I apologize for the stream of consciousness here on Citizen Kane. Two of my favorite things about the film, well, the first of two is the series of establishing shots of Xanadu with that solitary lit window remaining at the same position in the frame across all of the subsequent shots. So from the off, Wells is showing in his first film, complete mastery of filmmaking. Because even in the shot that's reflecting in water, the window, the you know, the, the lit window remains in the same part of, of, of the frame. I haven't counted how many shots, how many dissolves there are in this early scene. But early on, I was aware of the fact that, I was like, my God, the, the window stays in the same point. It doesn't add anything to the narrative, nothing at all. But it's just the fact that Wells and, and Greg Toland went to the trouble to just make that a thing something that can be talked about and, and I think picked it does up add on. a sense of dread and anticipation mm. because it starts off it's like a horror movie because well, Bernard Herrmann's score is so ominous yes, opening. Yeah, and and like I said dark. We, we, we've not yeah. heard an opening kind of uh, fanfare to accompany the title card the first bit of music we've got is brooding dark and ominous and then it, it jumps into jaunty with news on the march <laughs> Well, I, I think what you were saying about the the, uh, the dissolves from window to window, it, it's something that was carried really all the way through the film. I think the, the more times you watch it, the more you start to realise that they were constantly trying to di- basically disguise or prevent you from noticing edits. I mean, the film is famous for having very, very long, extravagant takes, but when there are cuts, they're often incredibly smooth. Rather, they're, they're usually dissolved, actually. The obvious example at the beginning is keeping the window in the same place to give the, the film a, a sort of a smoothness of transition. But there are things like that going all the way through the film. And the more you watch it, the more you notice them and the more impressive it becomes. So I think they were sort of setting out the, the, the stall of their visual plan for the film, Greg Toland and Orson Welles, right from the off, really. Yeah, and, and you know we've got their news on the march and then during that like huge opening montage, Something that I, I don't think I'd noticed before, but on the most recent rewatch, we see handheld footage of, of an aged cane being pushed around in a wheelchair. Now, I don't, again, going back to films from that era, I don't think I've ever seen handheld footage of this kind in a film from that era that wasn't existing stock footage. So again, is Wells really pushing the envelope here, or is it just my ignorance of other films from that era? It, it, was this the first time we'd seen anything like that? Because I've never seen it before. Well, the film was actually, newsreel was actually edited by the newsreel department of um, Papillon. Yeah. So, um, you know, oh. they knew what they do. So a lot of it is stock footage. And he just gave him a few little things to put in. So, yeah. but you know, looking back now, we don't know because obviously we we didn't yeah. see these newsreels regularly. Mm. So, uh. and, and Wells had worked for uh, March of Time 
as a, as a young younger actor. So again, he was very, very familiar with this stuff. And he said the, the shot that you specifically mentioned of a very old cane being pushed around in, in a wheelchair apparently was a part he had played, albeit on the radio, and that had sort of stuck in his mind and he'd carried it forward in, into it, the, the visual sort of parody of the March of Time uh, newsreels, which, you know, just goes to show, you know, that the ideas for, for Kane and all the innovative ideas that he, he and his crew came up with were often sort of drawn from his surprisingly impressive past experience considering his age. Yeah, yeah. And, and I also know that in order to match the new things that they shot with the existing stock footage, they dragged the film behind like a car to drive it, to give it all the scratches and bumps and everything. Because all that newsreel footage that people were used to and accustomed to, that's getting shipped all over the place. It's getting run through projectors so many times that it's going to look aged when you finally scan it. And just the fact that they went to the trouble of filming all this stuff for this exposition scene, I'm sure that must have cost a lot of money to suddenly get all, all these shots of like all these crates being loaded onto a, a boat with the word cane. And it's something that's in the, in the film for two seconds. I can't believe that Orson Welles at the age of 24 was able able to get so many of the visual flares that he was able to in this. Because I can just imagine a 24-year-old telling me, like, I have this great idea, we're going to do this, and everyone being like, yeah, right, that's going to be very expensive. You don't know what you're talking about. You're 24. But he was able to command that at his age and know and have that mastery and knowledge. And that's the only thing I don't like about this movie, that Orson Welles was only 24, because that frustrates me, because at 10 years older, I can't get anywhere near that. Dave, I kid you not, a few days ago, when we'd finally nailed down a recording date and I started really like, sort of thinking about this film, I had exactly the same thought, that I am 20 years older than Orson Welles was when he made this film. And I think back to how I was when I was 24, I had not even a fraction of the drive and determination and direction and just ability that that man had not but then as we'll come to later a lot of people talk about the promise that wells showed and the fact that they ask the question or make the statement that wells peaked early and never really followed up on that i i don't think that's true i don't I think, think it's so far too complex a career to sort of condense down to one simple thing of the guy peaked with his first film and everything else after that was less. I don't agree with that. But there's certainly an element of, at this point in time, everything came together perfectly. It was like a perfect confluence of, of writer, cinematographer, editor, composer, actors, near enough compared to how things would go later on in his career, minimal studio interference. I think the old idea that um, he started to the top and you know that's something he said. I think that's yeah. something that he always said, I, I start to the top and I've been working my way down ever since. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, but he, he liked to tell a story. So a lot of the stories around Kane, yeah. which we don't know if it's, they're true or yeah. not, because Wells could be sitting down with one group of people and hold the floor because that's what he liked to do. Mm-hmm. And he could tell them stories for an hour and then the next day sit in front of another group of people and tell them different stories. Yeah. But, uh, I think he did like to push the, that myth because he was a good story. And it's, worth, it's worth saying that he, I mean, in terms of his, his youth, he achieved more before Citizen Kane. I mean, without Citizen Kane, up before Citizen Kane, he'd achieved more than, I mean, anybody in show business. He was this uh, sort of wunderkind of, of the theatre in, in New York. He had done some of the greatest uh, that, you know, that I was watching a documentary where people were saying it's his Julius Caesar was the greatest Shakespeare production ever on the American stage. That's before, you know, he had this massive voodoo Macbeth he did with an all-black cast and you know and then he had the the War of the Worlds success you know and he was on the cover of Time magazine before Citizen Kane even happened that probably makes you even more annoyed about him now that he didn't even need Citizen Kane to be a legend he was already there. You mentioned War of the Worlds there Stephen the first knowledge I ever had of Orson Welles was 
my, my dad had the um, double gatefold vinyl album of War of the Worlds, the, the Jeff Wayne musical. I remember one day asking him what that was because, you know, as, as a kid, I had a lot of sort of vinyl children's stories, um, things which I would listen to on repeat. And then I saw this one and I thought, well, I said to him, you know, what is this? Because I, I was aware of the um, of Byron Haskins film, which I, I'd already seen and I loved that film. I thought, well, is this like sort of a newer version of it? And when he explained to me what it was, he then told me about Orson Welles. The it was it Lux Lux Theatre version and, and and the myths surrounding that. And the way my dad told it was that people believed it, and there were several people committed suicide. He kind of made up this kind of far more extreme version of of things than how they actually played out. Although there are certain people that will say that yeah, they, it was actually played down afterwards, and there were actually a few deaths that may have been you know attributed to this radio show. Whether or not that's true, I don't think we'll ever know. But that that was the first time I ever became aware of Orson Welles was through his radio adaptation of War of the Worlds. Well, I, I saw people being interviewed from the period. The documentary I watched was made in the 90s. It wasn't a particularly good documentary, but it, it had a lot of very interesting interviews in it. There were people there who were alive at the time, and they, they were telling stories about how their parents had put uh, wet towels on the windows to, to prevent the gas from getting them and, and had been trying to put phone calls through to relatives just to say goodbye. So I think so I think it was a genuine panic as to whether mm. there were suicides. I don't know. And um, William Allen, who plays Thompson in Citizen Kane, was also in, in War of the Worlds, um, and he tells the story of the head of the studio coming in during the performance basically and telling them that they needed to announce that it was fake and Wells flatly refused to do so because he enjoyed what was happening <laughs> which is something that I think he played down later but uh, he, he didn't know that it was going to scare the producers out of people at the beginning but after about 15 minutes he knew what was happening and just uh, carried on. I mean would you stop if you had no. a podcast that people thought was real and you said there were aliens, would you stop? No. Not a chance. Oh no. god no I would run with it <laughs> as far as I could. <laughs> <laughs> that that would be the first the the funnest thing and like uh, like like you said Orson Welles could have done nothing else in his life ever after that and still been famous still been just as well known but and, and my understanding is that he had turned down a lot of offers to even go to Hollywood mm. but he was running debts so he thought it was going to be a quick way to make a buck yeah he he had a show called Five Kings that that flopped although he's a legend or was a legend in the theater things were starting to go south he he basically kept saying no to offers until the right offer came his way and he actually needed the money at that point and i think his thinking was that he would use the money that he made to then farm that back into theater um but that isn't actually what ultimately ended up happening he fell in love with the medium and uh, in some ways it as i'm sure we'll go into it it sort of dragged down the quality of his life whilst also i'm sure in enhancing his artistic life in some ways i was just going to say most 24 year olds get into debt that way by trying to make a movie it's usually right. the reverse of, of orson welles's life mm -hmm. there but granted it we all know obviously he had a more tragic end than his beginnings here i don't know it's it's very interesting to kind of see I, i'd love to see someone make a movie about orson welles in the same fashion of citizen kane because i think you really could dig in deep there into what his true feelings were because of the fact that his life was so larger than life and the stories that he told were so larger than life the very famous commercials near the end of his life where he was obviously uh, drinking wine during pee commercials and everything or voicing a transformers character i'm one i'm a big toy that eats other toys <laughs> his entire life has this grandiose quality that i'd love to kind of dig out down deep try to find the real person behind all of that mythology yeah and i, I don't know if you ever will he was a magician he was a storyteller and i don't think we're ever going to know the truth about awesome Wells. if you can ever know the truth about 
you know any one person but yeah you know he was mm-hmm. an enigma wrapped in a, a myth surrounded by a mystery he yeah. was just you know and we don't have a rosebud to point no, us in any direction that's right and even even with that i mean that's kind of the, the the message behind citizen kane is that you can never really know one person because ultimately only the audience knows this at the end because we're shown the right things the interviewer that's our surrogate he never gets to the bottom of it. There's never this moment where it's like, Rosebud, get that out of the fire. We need that. Uh, it's gone. It's just burned away into nothingness because it was considered unimportant. No one connected the dots. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about you know the, the inception of the story and the screenplay by Herman Mankiewicz and and Wells, and then obviously the the ties into real life where you know certain people like William Randolph Hearst were supposed to be the basis for the character of Charles Foster Kane. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about the the screenplay, which is obviously incredibly controversial, and I think people have been trying to wrench the co-credit away from Wells basically since before the film was even finished. I think that that's that's an interesting story. I I find it sad actually that that it's still a controversy. I read a, a wonderful sort of technical making of book by uh, Robert Carringer, and basically what he did is is he went through all of the uh, scripts, all of the different drafts of the scripts into interviewed all of the people alive that were associated with the writing of the film and I think came what what must be as close as you can get to a historically accurate version of what happened although there are obviously gray areas but but essentially that the idea came either from Wells or from Mankiewicz or they both came up with uh, the idea and you know coalesced it together Mankiewicz was hired to write the screenplay and then was sending uh, with John Hausman who was uh, was Wells's the producer and a, a secretary and then at a certain point his time on the on the, the screenplay was over he produced an incredibly long screenplay called American Wells then took that and excised massive massive chunks out of it I mean there was a presidential assassination Kane's son apparently was a was a fascist who led some kind of terrorist attack and was killed there were whole sections about Kane's youth traveling around Rome I mean there was a, there was a lot in there that isn't in the finished film. So Wells basically removed all of that, compressed sections of time, wrote some original stuff. So he wrote the breakfast table scene between Kane and Emily Munro Norton. And I think there's a sec that the sort of Thatcher section uh, at the beginning where his guardian Thatcher is, you know, looking at various newspapers about the the Inquirer, Kane's newspaper at- attacking the Traction Trust. I think that was mostly Wells. And then at a certain point, they needed to make budget cuts, but Wells uh, was basically already in pre-production, so he brought Mankiewicz back. But at that point, Mankiewicz would have been something more like a factotum. He would have just been making the changes he was told to make, and they were rehearsing the production as well. They were rehearsing the actors, so a lot of the changes would have come out of rehearsal. And then Catherine, a lady called Catherine Trosper, I think I'm getting that right, was Wells's secretary, and, and she basically says Wells was continuously rewriting the dialogue all the way through production, you know, even while he was sitting for sort of seven hours at a time in a makeup chair. So my, my opinion is that the credit that we have on screen is entirely accurate, that Mankiewicz did write, the, I guess, the lion's share of the screenplay, the characters, a lot of the dialogue, but then it took someone like Wells, who was an expert at editing original, already existing uh, literature. You know, he edited Shakespeare on stage. He edited plays for radio. He was an expert at editing and, and, and reshaping um, pieces that already existed. So it needed it needed him to then turn an ungainly, talky, apparently rather dull screenplay into the incredibly slick, complex um, piece of work that ultimately made it made it to the screen. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Because you know we've we've also seen a, you know a, another you know interpretation of of the events of that time and and the kind of genesis of this film in Fincher's film Mank mm-hmm. from from last year. I, I was literally just going to say, can you think of any other movie whose screenplay has its own movie about it? Exactly, and also its own <laughs> Wikipedia page. There is literally a Wikipedia page just for the screenplay yeah. for Citizen Kane. Probably would not be as hotly contested. I know there's so many movies out there where authorship is not properly credited, where people get their name on it just because they wanted it there because they paid enough money. And there's plenty of screenplays where the true author just isn't credited at all because they got paid enough money. They don't have this movie about it, but because Citizen Kane stands as this greatest movie of all time and I think the other piece here is that it's Orson Welles' only Oscar is for the screenplay for this. Because of those elements, you're always going to have some someone fighting over it for some reason, trying to gain maybe something that they don't have. But I, I think you see too much brilliance from from uh, Orson Welles later in his career to say that he had no hand in this. And just two of the scenes that, that you mentioned before, Stephen, that Orson Welles clearly had a hand in, like the breakfast scenes. That's one of the most brilliant scenes in the entire movie, because just in body language and framing and shooting, you see the complete and utter breakdown of a marriage just through this montage. I, you know, I mentioned that the opening shots of Xanadu are one of my two favorite aspects of this film or scenes from this film. And that is the second one. It's the breakfast montage between Kane and Emily. And like you say, yeah, we, we see the, the, the degradation of a marriage over the course of a few minutes. I, I don't think it's just one of the high points of this film, but of Wells' career, because it's, it's just a series of breakfast conversations revolving around Kane's work at the newspaper, and you know everything is nice and jolly, and it, it's even echoed in, the, in Bernard Herrmann's score, that is all upbeat and uplifting and, and nice and jovial, and then it gradually gets the joy kind of sucked out of it, and then it culminates with Kane and Emily sitting opposite one another in silence, with Emily reading the Chronicle and Kane reading the Inquirer, and it is... It's just perfect. Has it ever been a more effective display of economical storytelling in a film? It's an entire marriage condensed into a few minutes. It just floors me every time I see it. Obviously, I, I did end up going to film school. As I mentioned earlier, I said that I wanted to do that. We obviously studied Citizen Kane a lot. And in a screenwriting class, there were three shots from Citizen Kane that we kind of poured over. One was obviously the opening with the window in the same place. The other was this breakfast scene where it started out with two people in love sitting right next to each other and ending with them as far apart as they possibly could be reading different newspapers, one being obviously his rival's newspaper. Yeah. And the third uh, that we studied was the opera house scene, the initial mm-hmm. scene where uh, where his second wife was uh, butchering opera and the camera just keeps going up and up and up and up. But I'm sure we'll talk about that more later. Well, yeah, you know, let's let's talk about the look of the film because Greg Toland he actually went to Wells and asked to be put on the film as cinematographer, and he fit the bill perfectly for Wells as a man who had self-taught himself the art of being a director of photography, just like Wells, whose background was in theatre. He taught himself the art of film and so and kind of you know jumped into it pretty fresh. And then you've got that famous push-in shot of the the rooftop of the El Rancho, and, and you know where, where the sign is split in two and pulled away as the camera passes through it. And I think. That is the one memory I've got of my first viewing of this film where I thought, oh, wow, the camera's just gone through that. And they, they, you know, the film is peppered with little moments where, more so than the story, and I think that's something I have to come back to later, is it's not the story for me that is the thing that stands out about Citizen Kane, although there are aspects about how it's told and about how the fact that it doesn't take sides and it doesn't offer you any firm judgment that I really do... You know, as, I, as I get older, as I watch the film more, I do like and respect more. But it's the it is from the technical point of view. And I know you know we'll come to later whether or not this is the greatest film ever made. But I certainly and I think that is all purely subjective. But I certainly think that no one can argue the point that this is one of the most well-made films ever made from 
certainly from a visual point of view. I think part of it, though, is also because we're all film geeks and we yeah. see so many ordinary yes. films using the same techniques over time. So when we see something like that, yeah. where, you know, going through the sign or any of these, the yeah. deep focus, the, you know, all these things, you know, we geek out on those, you know, if we, we do. Really be honest, because they are so remarkable. But I think, look, let's try contextualise it now into something a bit more contemporary. I am currently in the process, uh, certainly with my oldest son, of, of showing him from what, from my point of view, what I think is going to be a, a good education in film. And given those things are, and the fact that it, it is, you just can't get away from the fact that children these days are just not going to have that propensity to watch older films from, certainly from the golden age, that, that, that we you know, watched when we were younger. So I started him off on certainly more contemporary films, obviously films which were made long before he was born. And he has grown up on a diet of films where computer-generated imagery is just the norm. It's de rigueur, isn't it? But I'm pretty confident that when I first show him Terminator 2 for the first time, even though nothing he's seen is, from a, a technical point of view, stuff he's not seen before, it's done in such an imaginative way by James Cameron with cutting-edge technology at the time that I'm sure that he is going to be impressed. The, the computer-generated imagery in that film on screen is only you know a couple of minutes, but it, it's done in such a way that every single use of it is clever, it's perfectly thought out, it's imaginative, none of it is just chucking it on screen for you know a Michael Bay type effect it's done with a precise purpose and I think with Citizen Kane like you say in, in, in comparison to other films of that era there are visual flourishes in this film which are done with such precision and with such careful thought that it just it just comes back to the fact that this was Wells's first film and it just amazes me and those effects would be as good in, right up into the 60s and 70s yeah. And it's only when you contextualise about you compare Terminator 2 to other films then that followed in this week where computer generated imagery was it was put into play in nowhere near the same way. But you can also argue, because obviously if you were to sit someone down that is very used to modern films and show them Citizen Kane, are they going to be amazed by the fact you see a ceiling in the movie? Were audiences in the 40s amazed by the fact you could see a ceiling in the movie? Because prior to this... Really, sets were not built with yeah. ceilings. That's where all the lighting was hidden. So yeah. you couldn't have those low-angle shots where you have these two towering figures as tall as the screen possibly just kind of standing over the camera. But suddenly you change the way you build the set. You have to change the way you light it. It becomes more realistic. It becomes more natural. And you have all of this visual language and cinematic language that you could not access before that's being invented right yeah. here. And it's the kind of thing where your brain's going to kind of notice it. just like, oh, they look kind of tall in that scene. But it required... This huge, massive shift in the way films were made at the time. This itself, I think, in a much more subtle way, had just as big of an impact on filmmaking as something like Breathless did. A lot of people say, like, oh, there was movies before Breathless and there's movies after Breathless. I think you could make that same argument here with Citizen Kane in just the way that films were being shot and lit and sets were built and everything there because it opened the door to so much more. Now, Al Truffaut himself said that every film since 1941 has been influenced in some way or another by Citizen King. Yeah, mm. let's look at Raiders of the Lost Ark, famous final shot of, of the crate, you know, of the crate being pushed, and and it, it it's like that yeah. final shot of all of Kane's belongings just boxed up, and clearly it's got to be an homage by Spielberg to that mm. shot. Even if it wasn't intentional, it's the kind of thing that's in his brain probably mm. because he's seen this movie. Yeah. But also, you know, he uh, Wells was, well, he described it as the confidence of ignorance. He didn't know what he was doing, so that there was nothing that he couldn't do. And he had, uh, you know, Greg Toland by his side, who essentially versed him in the ways of the cameraman so that he had, he gained some technical understanding of how things worked. And so he had someone who basically could, because Toland was considered the best and most innovative cameraman alive, really, and he had uh, his own technical crew, um, he had his own equipment, which was very, 
very cutting edge. So he was able to to do things really for Wells that no other cameraman would have been able to do. You know, they challenged each other, I'm sure. Wells apparently would come up with shots that were incredibly difficult to do just to see if Toland could do them and Toland could carry them off. And Wells also demanded experimentation from from Toland. And I think, you know, from Toland's point of view, I mean, it's it's the deep focus that meant that the sets, as you say, ha- had to be done differently. The sets had to be made much more detailed at front and, and back because you could see everything. And by using that technique, they were able to uh, avoid montage editing. They were able to, I, I came across this wonderful phrase, uh, they were able to show a corridor of a moment. And uh, I think that probably my favorite shot in the whole film is at the beginning, close to the beginning, and it's the the, the boarding house scene where the young Charlie Kane is seen in right at the back in the distance, framed by a window. And it has this wonderful expressive idea that when he feels most at his most free playing in the snow, he's actually just about to be trapped. And then you move forward into the frame and you've got his his father who is sort of half-heartedly objecting to what's going on. And then you move a little bit closer and you've got Walter Thatcher, the, the banker, who's going to become Kane's guardian and take him away, sort of sitting there officiously uh, next to Mrs. Kane, Char- Charlie Kane's mum. And uh, she's got this look of sort of puritanical sacrifice on her face. You see that shot without any editing and you know exactly the emotional impact of what's going on. And I think you know, that that is the extraordinary thing that occurred, you know, when Wells's vision and Toland's technical nous kind of came together. And Wells, uh, obviously, his background was in theatre and he he was used to using these deep planes of space on the stage. And so, you know, you mentioned that at the beginning, it feels as if the curtain's opening at the beginning of the film. You know, we, it, it is in some respects theatrical, you know, you, because people can move around the space in a way that they wouldn't have been able to with the sort of, I guess what you would say, a sort of a, a star version of editing where you've got lots of close ups of people's faces here. You can see everybody and they're free to explore, explore these incredibly complex sets. So I think to me, that's that's the thing that, that perhaps the most exciting, you know, not innovation, but the most exciting use of a new technology that exists uh, within Citizen Kane. You know, there's a great story of uh, that um, Wells used to say, again, which can take you with a pinch of salt. He said that uh, Greg Toland used to communicate with his technicians by hand signals. So that mm. because obviously they didn't have walkie talkies back in those days. So if you wanted a technician to move a light, you would just give him an hand signal. And on the first couple of days that uh, they were on set, Wells was going and saying, OK, I want this light here. I want this light there. And of course, he, he knew how to light a theatre but he didn't know how to light a film and Greg Toland was walking behind him giving hand signals to the technicians so they would do it as he wanted it not as Wells wanted <laughs> yeah, it yeah, yeah. and um, when somebody actually mentioned it to Wells Greg Toland was livid yeah. because was he methods. was having so much yeah. fun <laughs> yeah getting these things yeah. past Wells that yeah. Wells yeah. yeah but you mentioned Stephen there that scene early on in the film with you know young Charles Foster King with his parents I think that if there's ever going to be a key to understanding the central tenet of this film it's going to be something to do with that scene and how you interpret it mm. right. Agnes Moorhead please Kane's mother Mary you know is it coincidence that the mother of Kane, this legendary man who's elevated to an almost mythical position in the film shares the same name as Jesus's mother now Moorhead she's got this great stern look but still manages to convey kind of warmth and and a caring towards her only child which she is effectively about to sell the suggestion of course is that Mary sends Charles away with Mr Thatcher to grow up away from an abusive father certainly his alcoholism is hinted at Mm -hmm. but 
is that how you guys see it? Because I can certainly see some sort of warmth between Charles and his father that just isn't there. Certainly from his mother towards Charles. She does come across as very cold and, and detached. Yeah, I think that he goes to his father for perhaps for play. His father's probably a lot more fun in that respect. Yeah. But his mother was the, the practical one, the disciplinarian, the one who actually um, you know could guide him in life. Mm. Whereas his father, when he was sober, because I think he was alcoholic, you yeah. know, and that's and he he did have a heavy hand. But I think that when he wasn't drinking, he was probably the one that Charles. Well, and, and of course, his, his mother calls him Charles. His father calls him Charlie, Charlie yeah. and the people in his life who he really loved called him Charlie. Yeah. I mean, uh, Susan called him Charlie as well. You know, a couple of them called him Charlie. Mm-hmm. Jedediah called him Charlie as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ones who called him Charles didn't really, perhaps it was perhaps more pragmatic, perhaps more practical. The, they were the structure of his life. Yeah. Whereas Charlie and his father was the, the fun of his mm-hmm. life, the things that were missing. Something in in that opening scene that that always almost like break your heart is when the mother says that she had his bags packed for a week. Like yeah. she almost can't wait to get rid of him. And I think to her that she's doing it for virtuous reasons, so he can have a better life. I don't know if necessarily the dad was abusive, but I can definitely see you definitely see that the mother and the father almost do not like each other. It is his, her chance to make sure that he doesn't yeah. end up like the dad, an alcoholic, a nothing. So in her brain, she is giving him the opportunity to be something better. And obviously, I think that it's pretty much said in the film, he said, says it almost exactly, that he probably would have been happier had he never left. He would have been a happier man if he turned out like his father in the way he did. Because, you know, the opening act of the film then, you know, with his to and fro and in time and, and montage style, it comes to the 24-minute point where we finally meet Charles Foster Kane as a, as a young man. And, and Wells... You know, completely commanding the, mm-hmm. the, the screen with this electrifying charisma. And then he's got that line. He says, I always gagged on that silver spoon. If I hadn't been rich, I might have been a really great man. Somewhere in between mm. that and then this success and status and power that was thrust upon him. And then, you know, the, his, his final words of Rosebud harking back to this, you know, sled which he had as a kid. I think for me, it comes down to one of two things, the ultimate meaning of the film and what, and, and what his longing is. It's, it's either for a childhood that was taken away from him or the love of a mother, which just he, he never had. Yeah, I, I think it's probably yeah. both of those. I mean, I think there's a, a psychological sort of split occurs when when he's taken away from his mother by Thatcher, which is that basically he, he hates because of this he hates authority which is why i think in the early phases of the film he's crusading against everything that thatcher hates he's basically attacking thatcher by doing that but at the same time he himself is an authoritative figure so that's i think what makes him somewhat confusing yes i I think you know the the sort of simplistic way of looking at the film which the film you know allows you to have is that all of his problems stem from the loss of a sort of childhood idyll and I think, you know, the, the other incredibly potent piece of iconography in the film is the snow globe with a sort of a cabin, a snowy cabin inside of it. And it's almost as if within that snow globe is his memory, perhaps, you know, idealized memory of a of a perfect childhood that was then taken away from him. So when Susan leaves him later on in the film, he finds this snow globe and that snow globe is like, you know, a representation of the memory of his of his childhood. And he remembers it because his wife is leaving him in the same way that he was taken away from his mother. And I think that's why when he he dies, he drops the snow globe and it smashes because that memory is now 
gone forever because he's gone forever. So there are all these kind of in-depth psychological implications that you can read into it. But of course, the issue with the film is that it's all greatly open for interpretation. You're not told what to think. You're allowed to draw your own conclusions and we may all walk away with quite different ones. Kane obviously supposedly being based on William Randolph Hearst, but the more I've kind of read into the film and the more I've you know I've watched it as the years have gone on, I definitely think, and I think it ties in as well to the way that if you believe certain people, that, that Wells very quickly not dismissed the film, but legend has it that he only saw the film twice, or not even twice, because he saw it once and then he went to a show in and actually walked out before the end. You know, what was it about that film that, if that's true, turned Wells off about it? You know, is it because that it was a lot more autobiographical? It, it was more about Orson Wells because you know he lost both his parents when he was young you know they, they both died when he you know when he was a young lad he, he was actually brought up by a man called dr bernstein who wells loved dearly and he then went on to name everett sloan's character after him even though the character was nothing really like the real life mr bernstein so are you suggesting that in the version of citizen kane that's about orson wells it's him in bed looking <laughs> at a videotape of citizen kane oh he wow. says I, I don't know then drops that's it, just it far too meta i can't even get my head around that but yeah I, you know i, I think <laughs> i'd say blu-ray but obviously that wasn't around in 1987 yeah. <laughs> or 85 sorry I, I know with bernstein that he I, I i was reading an interview with wells that there's a there's a book where he was interviewed by peter bogdanovich uh and he he said that he often called characters bernstein as a joke because um his guardian was called was called bernstein and he thought it would make him laugh that was the only reason he did that specific thing he apparently in lots of his radio dramas he would ca- name a character bernstein just to cheer up his his guardian i think there are superficial similarities between wells Wells's life and and the film, psychological. I don't I don't I don't know. It's very hard to to judge. I think a lot of it could well just be circumstantial in the fact that mm. Wells at twenty four was never going to you know see his future. Certainly you know, the way his life played out. Nobody it, does at that age. No, uh, but certainly not the way his life no. went. So <laughs> <laughs> honestly, if there was one human being in the face of the earth that at a young age was shown everything, I believe yeah. it was Orson Welles. I mean, he's a pretty smart yeah, well, guy for 24. Yeah, and Peter Bogdanovich said that Wells had a way of doing things that no one else did. And I think that applied to everything. I like the way what, what you just said, Steve, though, is uh, even back in the like the early 40s, Orson Welles invented the Easter egg with all the um, Bernstein references. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, he did. Yeah, he was just a play. I think he was just a playful guy. I mean, he referenced himself all the way through the movie. I mean, I think at one point he says, you shouldn't believe what you hear on the radio. And of course, that's a reference to War of the Worlds. Uh, at one point, Susan Alexander says to him, are you some kind of a magician? He was a magician. Um, yeah. And I think it, there's a, I'm not sure whether this is intentional or not but there's a scene where i think it's leland says to him it's very early on in the inquirer that you know the inquirer section of the film when they're getting started and he says to kane are you still eating and he says i'm still hungry and then they sort of slam a massive great big meal in front of him and i, I think even at that point he was eating you know a, sort of two chickens for lunch that sort of thing so yeah i think he was actually referencing himself he there is a youthful zest to the film. There's a playfulness to it. I mean, it's not just, you know, just in this sort of very exciting throw everything at the screen sort of style, but there was, there's also, um, they're also just having fun and, and referencing themselves. 
Well, let's talk then about Wells's performance in the film because it is very easy to get wrapped up in discussions about the the direction and and the you know the way the film looks. Because the one thing that has always impressed me is how Wells alters his physicality and the way he moves as he plays Kane at different ages. Now, obviously, he's helped by amazing age and makeup and and padded out to look bigger. But the way that he is so sprightly in his youth to then how he ambles around as a much heavier and older man is this never overplayed. It never it it convinces me. Like that age makeup. Now you would have thought that blue, like Dave, obviously you those moments where Blu-ray just gives away, you know, the the, the tricks and 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 certain alterations are not made, and then and then you you see a scene where a character that's supposed to be in darkness you can now actually see before you're supposed to because of the you know the improved contrast and, and the fact that you're seeing this film in a higher definition than the director and cinematographer ever intended. Mm-hmm. The, the makeup holds up, doesn't it? One hundred percent. There's only one scene. Oh my goodness! It's later on. I think it's when he discovers the uh, the snow globe after he's destroyed the house, and he just has his hands in front of him. There's that's the one scene where his age makeup looks a little bit worn, maybe mm. a little bit artificial. But it's also coming yeah. after a scene which he's been very physical, probably sweating a lot, and it's probably sure. like oh, we got to get the shot at the end of the day. But that's the only time in the entire movie where the old age makeup maybe does not look 100% genuine. And I always like the anecdote that that Orson Welles would say that he had more makeup on when he's playing a 25 year old <laughs> to look good than when he's playing like an 85 yeah. year old to look old because everyone says like oh you look so great in that movie like thanks more makeup and he was self-deprecating in that sense too but it's it's incredible and it's great with everyone like you would believe that joseph cotton was an old man and it's not just kane that does such a great job playing characters at various ages obviously he has the most heavy lifting because you see him at the most different phases of his life but everyone's doing a great job with that sort of like pretending to be an old man then being young it's it's great throughout I think the funny one was uh, Everett Sloan, who, who plays Bernstein. Everyone else had to wear lots of makeup with him. They just shaved his head. And he was he was sort of, he was 21. And uh, apparently, uh, Wells said it left a deep psychological scar on him at, at his incredible, incredibly young age. They could shave his head and he'd look 70. And that he, from then on, he, he had nose job after nose job after nose job, hoping that he could sort of fix whatever was wrong with his face that made him look that old if he just took away his hair. You always seem to be picking on Everett Sloan, though, because I remember the story from the lady from Shanghai. The reason why Everett Sloan walks with the kings, you know, because he, he walks with two kings yeah. and his legs are stiff, is because he couldn't walk on film. Oh. That's what um, Orson Welles said. He was <laughs> awful at walking <laughs> on film. So he gave him two kings so that he could, you know, have... And do we ever actually see him in this film moving? He's always static. Sat down the desk. Very, very, really. Or, at the yeah. beginning, when they're coming into the inquiry for the yeah. first time, I think. But other than that, no. Now... Going back to our last episode, Steve, Taxi Driver, and that when we first see Sybil Shepherd's character, the lady in the white dress, mm-hmm. and and I'd made that comparison to Bernstein's story about when he was younger. Oh yes, yes. And and he he saw that girl in in the on white the dress on the ferry. If we could find out what he meant by his last words as he was dying. That rosebud, huh? Maybe some girl. There were a lot of them back in the early days. It's hardly likely, Mr. Bernstein, that Mr. Kane could have met some girl casually and then 50 years later on his deathbed. Well, you're pretty young, Mr. Mr. Thompson. A fellow will remember a lot of things you wouldn't think he'd remember. You take me. One day back in 1896, I was crossing over to Jersey on the ferry. And as we pulled out, there was another ferry pulling in. And on it, there was a girl waiting to get off. A white dress she had on. She was carrying a white parasol. And I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all. But I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that I haven't thought of that girl. 
it, it's just one of those things that we're in your youth something happens it, it's relatively inconsequential and it just sticks with you mm. and that scene doesn't add to the narrative doesn't propel the story along but it's just an amazing little moment mm. I don't know why but when we were watching Taxi Driver oh sorry when we were prepping for Taxi Driver and it just hit me I was like because well, I, obviously I was in tandem prepping for this episode as well there's so many little moments like like that with and you know we, we, we haven't even mentioned Joseph Cotton yet because <laughs> at the 33 minute point where we first meet him as Kane's you know, if you can say that he truly had one as his best friend, Jedediah Leland. That that scene where he's try, trying to get Thompson to give him the cigar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when next time you come, you, you bring some, bring me some of those cigars. And it's almost as if, as he gets older, there's there's like a kind of southern drawl to his accent that, that kind of comes in, which the, the youthful Leland would have tried to subdue as he was like, you know, working in New York and places like that. Part part of me almost wonders if that was if that was just Joseph Cotton's like I could do a really great old man voice. It sounds a little southern, but it's okay. But it works. I don't. I'm never it just works. like, well, that ruins the movie. And it's such an old man thing to be like, sneak me in some cigars. I'm in the hospital. But the the, you know, the best addition to that that just tops off perfectly is that visor hat that he's wearing. <laughs> yes. I think that was out of necessity, wasn't it? They they what had happened is Wells had fallen down the stairs during the. Uh, I'm going to send you to Sing Sing scene where he's yelling yes. at Boss Jim Geddes. And so yeah. they basically they had to film something. And, and Cotton's uh, makeup basically wasn't ready. It wasn't done. So mm. his was the only makeup job that wasn't custom made for him. He just basically slapped on a skull cap and they painted some wrinkles on him. And, and he, he bought that sort of um, a sort of old gambler visor. Um, as a way of just covering up the fact that he didn't actually have the the correct makeup on, so that was all. That bit was all thrown together quite quickly. It does look very Florida retirement home, though. I think it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in that scene where Leland says to Thompson, he says he never believed in anything except Charlie Kane. He never had a conviction in his life except Charlie Kane. Now it seems that in Thompson's kind of quest to find out the truth about Kane, this one line probably best summed it up because it says something about him that on the surface seems profound but when you pick it apart it doesn't really mean anything and that is something coming from the man who was probably Kane's best friend in the world mm. I think Leland does give you the most juice about Kane really the lines that I like he, he says this in a couple of different places that basically all all Charlie Kane wants is to be loved but he can't love anybody and so he just, uh, I think Susan Alexander says something similar as well. Basically, he just tries to to buy you into loving him. And I think, you know, if you delve deeply into the psychology of the character, that may well be because he was effectively brought up by a bank. So he his idea of love is to have things bought for you. And so he desperately wants people to love him because he lost the love of his mother. The only way he knows how to get that is to give people stuff. And when they don't love him or when they work this out, he surrounds himself by things that can't leave him by statutory and builds himself a, a giant mausoleum to live inside of. So I think, yeah. you know, you, you can try and understand the character, but I think that the best clues all come from Leland. He does seem to be the character who understands Kane the best. He, I think he has the biggest section of the movie, mm. too. He does. I, don't know, I, didn't, I didn't time each thing. It just that feels like the biggest part. Th this is one of those movies where, like, I, I go to sit down and start taking notes for podcast, and then I'm just like, I have not taken a single note in like 45 minutes because yes. I've been so enraptured by the story. Yeah, yeah. They they removed Emily Munro Norton's section from the draft. 
really? um, the, the early draft. So that's why a lot of Leland's narrative is actually about the, um, Kane's marriage to Ruth Warwick's character, Emily Monroe Norton. So a lot of the stuff that you get from him, he couldn't really actually have witnessed. So essentially, you're getting two characters worth of information stuffed into Leland's. But it's it's um, still a it, it makes sense in that yeah. regard. If there's anyone else that's going to have the story, of course, it's going to be his best friend at the time, because I'm sure mm. Kane would have told him everything about that entire marriage. So it, it, it tracks. Yeah. It works. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, it, it always seemed to me that, that Bernstein was the one that just followed Kane, did his bidding. But Leland, kind of like early on in the film, you get hints that he can see you know, this man's weaknesses and his and his potential downfall. It's like that bit early on where they're, they're singing that song that is essentially about mm. Charles Kane and, and Kane actually seems to know the words of why did he actually write that song? You know, did he actually commission someone to write a song about himself yeah. because he's that much you know, of an egotist? But there's a reluctance in Leland to, to kind of join in and it's almost as if he's forcing himself because if he doesn't, it'll stand out. And then I think he is the one that can kind of foresee things and ultimately you could argue that he, he sabotages his relationship with Kane by you know the refusal to pander to him and to write a good review of Susan's performance. And it goes back to when um, they first started writing for the newspaper as well. You know, that list of pledges. It's um, Leland who wants to keep a copy. The, um, the uh, principles. The, the um, principles, yeah. Declaration of De- principles, of yeah, course. Yeah. The declaration of yeah. principles. And it's Leland who wants to keep a copy of that. Yeah. Because he knows that Kane is never going to live up to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He knows that as soon as, you know, the push comes to shove, everything's going to change. He knows his um, best friend better than his best friend. That, yeah. And again, like you say there, that, again, that, that probably even is better than the example I came up with. It perfectly encapsulates the way that he sees Kane. The fact that, well, hang on, you're making this bold statement of intent about your morals and how you're going to take this newspaper and every other venture that you, you, you're kind of using your power and, and, and your influence. You know, this is going to be an insurance clause here. I'm actually going to, no, I want a copy of that because that is going to come back and it's going to bite you on the backside. And boy, does it ever. Yeah. Yeah, obviously his aspirations do become greater, and you know he does see himself as a potential next president. And then that all leads into that big scene with Kane at Madison Square Garden making his bold threats to Boss Jim Gettys. And then immediately after that, Emily takes him to Susan Alexander's apartment. This, this, you know, we've already seen Kane when he stood at the side of the street and and he guessed. I wet got to think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She comes up with a pharmacy, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, he goes to her apartment and we see that relationship starting off. And then Gettys, at this point, has played this brilliant move against his political opponent. And this this pivot point in the film where Kane's story, where he, he undermines an opponent and he pays a hefty price because of his, you know, his, his ego and the fact that he thinks that he is cleverest guy in any room. And it's Kane's ideals taking a backseat to his growing arrogance. And I think that was maybe always there. And that's something that, that Leland could see from the start. But it grew as he became more powerful and influential. But then it was that arrogance, ultimately, that was his undoing. And it put pay to his political aspirations. And it caused the downfall of, of two marriages, several friendships. From a certain point of view, it's about the fact that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And a man who, he never earned the power or money. It wasn't like Leland who... I think we'd like to believe that Leland has, has, has come from old money. But he's kind of lost it all. But he still comes from old money, so there's like that kind of status that he's got. Whereas with Kane, it's stuff that he you couldn't even say he inherited it really. He was basically sold into a into a life of luxury. And I also think that with with Kane, those negative aspects of his personality came out when his options started narrowing. When he's young and he's got the whole world at his feet, yeah, he could hide himself from them. But then later, as he's you know his world starts to narrow and he starts to go into politics and he starts to think about one thing at a time, yeah. these elements of his character come out. Yeah. And then it's his refusal to back down because yeah. Gettys' threat oh, is quite down. clear. But he can't back down. And everyone is telling him that, okay, 
you, you've hit a brick wall here now. There is no getting past this point. He is going to expose this affair he's been having and it is going to cause him to be the subject of a scandal. But he, he won't. And, and the whole thing of like, you know, I'll send you to Sing Sing and, and the screaming at him as he's going down the stairs. It's just him, the pivot point in the film where he loses control and he steps over a line and he allows his ego to get the better of him. Mm. I mean, I think it is it is this thing about him being sort of anti-authoritarian. He doesn't like being told what to do. No. B- because probably, and that, if you want to accept sort of Rosebud as the key to the film, I think that is because he was taken away by an authority figure. And now the idea of ever being told what to do by anybody is absolutely unbearable to him and i think that that ultimately yeah it leads to his downfall and it's the the pivot point of the the film and the film from there on in becomes more expressionistic and and darker and and painful to watch what, one of the things i really like about that particular scene though is the blocking of of susan alexander where she's this sort of she's almost like a, a trapped animal in a cage you know you've got emily norton on one side gettys on another side kane on 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 another side forming a triangle and she's stuck in the middle and nobody is interested in her well-being nobody there even though kane is uh, refusing to back down which would basically leave you know end with his end with his split presumably from from susan he, he's not not backing down out of chivalry and by not backing down he's actually causing her a great deal of psychological harm but he doesn't care nobody cares about her and she sort of at one point whimpers you know what about me and nobody's interested and she I has think no that, power none she, she she's just no, a she's plot. just another project yeah completely because she has no wealth she has no status unlike mm. every other person in that room she has the most to lose and absolutely nothing to gain Mm. Yeah, I just think he's another. She's another toy for him to collect. Oh, you know, she's she's not not really a human being to him. Yeah, and I think after his political kind of aspirations get stopped, basically, also she then becomes the focus of of all of his energies and his drive, and he's going to create this this amazing opera star. You know, and I think it's like a throwaway comment. Something like she said something like, "Oh, my mum always, what my mum always mm-hmm. wanted me to be in theatre or something like that," and he kind of focuses on that and he just takes it to an extreme and essentially destroys her as a person. Well, he he wants love, doesn't he? I mean, he wanted, uh, there is a line from Leland, which is that, you know, he he went into politics when we weren't enough for him anymore. And then when that falls through, he tries to gain it through the Susan Alexander character. And I think that's why he says, we're going to be a great opera star. And then when that fails, that's when he just completely retires from from public life and builds himself, as Leland says, an, an absolute monarchy. I think the key to Kane is really in those scenes with Leland. I think if you listen again and again, he really quite clearly explains certain aspects of his behavior. You know, it's one of those things that you're not going to catch it on the first pass. It, it's quite subtle. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not to not to dig too bit deep into the politics side of things, but as an American that's lived pa- through the past five years, there's certainly a few comparisons that could be made to current events that have happened here that are a little unnerving to see the similarities play out like that in a movie that was yeah. made what seventy years ago now, eighty eighty years ago. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. twenty one. Uh, clearly not good at the year math, but yeah. Dave, aside from getting Steve and Stephen mixed up, one of the things I was going to predict I was going to do is constantly refer to this as the 70th anniversary of Citizen Kane, simply because the Blu-ray I've got was released in 2011 for the 70th anniversary. And every time I've I've been thinking back, going, yes, 70. No, it's not. It's actually 80. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, that that Blu-ray I've watched was was pressed. Is there, in fact, criterion about to uh, release a new version? In 4K. So that that old age makeup is going to really be put to the test then. Yeah, my my Blu-ray that's sitting in front of me says 75 years so even i thought that that was oh that's a lie <laughs> it's not that old 
What, what you were saying though about how um, we've already mentioned about how we can interpret it ourselves and it's quite a subjective <clears throat> what we get out of the film. What you were saying about the last five years, Dave, there is a video on YouTube of Donald Trump talking about Citizen Kane in which he gives his interpretation of it and Kane is somebody to look up to, somebody who has achieved a great deal. It, you know, um, Donald Trump said Kane was his favourite film because of that. So it's a completely different interpretation hmm. to what we probably coming up to with you know today. Don, Donald Trump's never seen it as a king. Honestly, but no, it was about a man who came from nothing and came to great wealth and great you know accumulation and died. A very I'd see him as more man. of an Armageddon man. I think he, he probably turns it off at, at the all. end of the rally. He just decides that he wins and then turns turns it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I he mean, makes his own. Yeah, yeah. You, you could make lots of comparisons. He 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 says he's going to send his political opponent to jail. He built a giant sprawling mansion in Florida. Yeah. Wow, it was frightening. <laughs> he had really parents is. that totally loved him. All those things. Mm. Yeah. Just go a bit of a tangent here. Let me ask you guys a question, right? When do you think Citizen Kane is set? What, what, what year are we talking about? Like the beginning? Yeah, what year do you think? It's, I'm, not, I'm not talking about all the flashback scenes, but the, the present day scenes, the interviews. Oh, I think it's 1941. I think they specifically yeah. say during the newsreel that it's 1941. The reason I say that is but because it, we see him with Hitler. We see him with Hitler, yeah. and we see him as a somebody who looks much younger, you know, an old older man, but I would say 10, 15 years younger. And he says, you know, I've talked to the respective leaders of um, Europe, and war, there will be right. no war. And so, that's got to be only two years previous. Yeah. Right. When we see that footage of him with Hitler, is he in age makeup then? He is, but not that much. Right. He could be. At least not, he's not the elderly man who is at the end of his so life. So when we see young Charles in that first scene as, as a young man with Leland and Bernstein. That's 1871. Yeah, yeah. So hold on. Let's do the math here. So how do we know wow. how old he was when he died? I don't think it's mentioned. Well, you can work it out because in, in the credits, it, it's listed as Kane age eight. He he was. It's a very weird thing. He was deliberately given exactly the same date of birth as William Randolph Hearst. The credits, it, it, there's no need for it. But basically what happens is mm. they give you the eight, 1871 so he was and, eight in eighteen seventy one. Exactly, and the credits tell you that it says Kane aged eight. Yeah. So he died when he was seventy eight. Yeah, exactly ten years younger than Hearst, who died in nineteen fifty one. Right, I'm trying. Do I'm even doubting myself now? When we first see them pull up to the offices in the scene, and they're looking up to the building, do they they arrive in a car or a horse and cart? I think it's a horse and cart pulling all of his stuff. Yeah. Yes. Because I'm trying to think then when we see the first car in the film because that's always a good indicator as to where we are roughly but and the fact that it goes back and forth in the narrative across time it, it's just so it. yeah it doesn't help at all <laughs> and the fact that we've got Kane in so many different stages of makeup and it's like well how old is he supposed to be here and it's only when we're able to tie into a reference like you know when he's with Hitler that you're able to get a rough idea as to when it is yeah the world uh, World War Two was 1939 yeah so if he's talking to the leaders and they say there will be no war, that's very close to war, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, we talk about late 38, early 39, and then mm. he was to die two years later and 15 years older. <laughs> yeah. Some, some people age rapidly once they lose their passion. Once once he doesn't have a project to work on anymore, it's all downhill from there. He yeah. declines yeah. quickly, that's what happened. Just, yeah. An yeah. illness just took him out fast. The snow globe was made with radium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
nerd. You talk about that scene with um, putting the camera in the floor to make it look like giants. But, you know, the scene between Leela and the Kane is in the Inquirer office, and there's the remnants of what um, like a, the party that's happened the night before could be seen. And then Wells placed the camera so low that obviously they had to make a hole in the floor. And for all the attempts to figure out the meaning and apply some sort of analysis to film, and in this case, why that camera was placed so low, making Kane and Leela look like giants. Apparently, Wells' response when asked by Bogdanovich was simply because it looked good. <laughs> Typical Wellesian response. He liked what the world looked like from down there. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like stalls. you say, we, we we didn't see ceilings. You know, it was always that sort of the camera is placed ground level, looking front on at the characters. I think, in fact, when he's trashing Susan Alexander's room the camera again is placed at a really low angle it's the first kaiju yeah. movie technically in that scene yeah first kaiju yeah because he is like godzilla stomping through tokyo yeah, yeah. well that scene when he leaves uh, her room after trashing it and you see him walking out into the corridor and you got that mirror oh, the effect. mirrors oh, and that the is mirrors. the many faces of king i think yeah you know because he is not one person and the fact that we've seen every different person's reflection of him haven't we mm-hmm. you know because i think it's at least five key characters that give us you know their version of of, of who he is and of this man's life you know the, the ceiling thing also allowed them to because the ceilings were largely made of muslin and they had microphones there and that's one really? of the reasons why yeah and that, that's that's why the sound is so good and most mm-hmm. of the sound was recorded in production not all of it but most of it and 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 that's why i mean it's i think one of the famous things about the film is how good the sound is that that it yeah. It tracks, it tracks around, so people's distance from the camera and things like that reflect, you know, is reflected in the sound. That's one of the things that um, that Wells brought brought from radio. So one of the reasons why the sound was so good is because there were microphones hanging above their heads most of the time. It's Um, shocking that no one's ever tried. Oh, granted, not that I'm aware of has ever tried to do that because you watch plenty of horror movies from the '80s where you'll see just the boom mic in the shot, or just a movie that's not cropped properly, and you'll just see the the boom mic right there because they're like, oh, it's going to be cropped out or if you see it in the theater back when they used to show things on film mm-hmm. i can't remember what the movie was but suddenly it got knocked out of the alignment and all you could see was just the uh the boom mic going back and forth back and forth so hiding right. it behind the ceiling is brilliant and yes. also giving you something to look at during these very low angle shots of these towering figures having a uh, godzilla versus rodan fight <laughs> But, you know, the, the Great Hall sequence, the famous Great Hall sequence, the, the, they couldn't do that because obviously, you know, it's this massive sort of edifice with no, you know, the ceilings are, are supposedly miles high. So they actually shot that scene completely silent because they couldn't get the microphones into the sh- near enough. Hmm. I had no idea. You wouldn't have thought it, would you? No, no. no. And you talk about the sound, Stephen. Let's talk about Bernard Herrmann's score. Mm. Okay. I did something today. I, I, I can't remember the last time I did, I, I did this. I've never actually listened to the score of Citizen Kane. I've listened to innumerable film scores. Listening to film scores is just, just one of the things that I do. You no know, prepping for that Jerry Goldsmith episode that Steve and the other Stephen and I did last year. I, I listened to so many film scores. And the fact that we were in lockdown and I was doing a big landscaping project out my back garden, I just listened to score after score after score. It actually dawned on me today. My God, we're recording Citizen Kane tonight. I've never actually listened to the score. So I found it on Spotify. Whether it's not a complete recording or whether there's just a relatively small amount of music in the film, but it was only 29 minutes long. I listened to the score and I immediately put it straight back on and listened to it again. I I actually messaged you, Steve, and I. I said, I've never actually given that much attention to Bernard Herrmann's music in this film. 
Now, Dave, you and I, on the Vertigo episode, we talked about his amazing score on Vertigo. I mentioned the fact that his scores for Psycho and North by Northwest, and and certainly on our last episode, Taxi Driver being one of my absolute all-time favourite film scores. But I'd always dismissed the score for Citizen Kane because I'd never listened to it in isolation. It was never one of those film scores that you hear the music straight away. Like, you hear the music from Psycho and it's instantly recognisable, whereas with Citizen Kane, it's just not got that same sort of thing for me. But my God, what an amazing score. And it goes through so many different variations on style of music. You've got that ominous opening. Then you've got the news on the march, sort of jolly and jovial. And then the one which completely blew my mind was the scene with the the breakfast montage with Emily and the music that accompanies that. Because the way it starts off, it actually reminded me of 50s era Disney films. Films like Alice in Wonderland and Sleeping Beauty. And there's actually one bit that actually sounds like Someday My Prince Will Come. The sort of weaved into it. And it's this incredibly romantic music. And then gradually Herman pulls all the niceness and the soul out of the music. And then by the end, he just left with this sparse music that ultimately perfectly matches what we're seeing on screen. But the score, I was amazed. I, I, I had to put it straight back on and listen to it again. I don't think I've actually ever listened to it in isolation. I, I, I have um, not. And I, I should. No, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's what I'm thinking now. I feel uh, guilty because I haven't done that now. But I think a lot of the time with film scores is if it isn't an obvious standout central theme mm. or, or music yes. that, you know, like Indiana Jones, Superman, pretty much, you know, all the best scores where there's an immediate recognizable theme some film scores if they haven't got an obvious theme like a lot lot of howard shaw's music i think falls foul of that and that's not taking any way anything away from him because i think he's one of the greatest film composers ever he is absolutely amazing but a lot of his films certainly though you know the stuff he's done for cronenberg there isn't an obvious musical theme to it like his score for silence of the lambs yeah yeah hum the music from that you can't because it's it's just music that perfectly accompanies the film without rising above that Mm. yeah it's almost hidden yeah you know invisible music yeah it does what a good film score does it enhances the film but it doesn't it doesn't do what a lot of Hans Zimmer's scores do where it gets in the way of the film a good film composer knows when to use silence and as we you know as we said with the opening to this film there's no music it's very restrained for for the time yeah it's a very very uh, restrained score and I think Bernard Herrmann was actually as with everyone really in the crew he was there from the beginning and he was composing the score as the film was being shot and cut which is probably why it works with the film as opposed to sort of stands on top of it yeah. which is is great and I, I like what you said about the because I, I haven't listened to it in isolation but I tried really hard to make a point of listening to the music while I was watching it to try and tease out any major themes but I just end up getting wrapped up in the film and I don't specifically notice the music anymore which I think might might be a compliment actually to Herman in, the, in that it did weave beautifully and seamlessly into the film but the scene that I did specifically specifically noticed was the one that you mentioned which is the the breakfast table scene which is that every time that we jump forwards in time there's a different piece of music which i thought was incredible he's written these tiny little snippets of music for each time we move forward a year or two years or five years or whatever it's meant to be i thought that was really really impressive and was that music meant to reflect the changes in yeah uh, it does right the i listened to a 2012 pressing of the soundtrack which is on Spotify. The, the track is called Val's Presentation, Kane's First Wife. And it's a four minute track. It blew me away. The fact that it goes from all these different, it's like as if you take a music from four different film scores and put them into one track. Watching the scene then and being more aware of the music, give it a totally different kind of um, appreciation for, 
for, for Herman's score. A film score that I'd never really, would never really have said is one of the all-time greats now. I, I've, I've just very quickly reassessed. And it's just another one of you know the aspects of this film that just absolutely works. And it's the coming together, all of these amazingly talented people on his first film. Well, when you think about the first film that had a an accompanying score on the film and, and composed for the film was King Kong 33. Yeah. And this was only eight years later. Eight years later, yeah, of course, yeah. And it was in another advance then. Yeah. Yeah, when I remember the first time I saw this movie, the one complaint I really had about it was the music because it just seemed very old-timey to me. It was the most dated part of the music. Watching it now, I'm going to say that there is one theme that goes across the whole movie and that is the song that he that that, that charles foster Kane probably wrote himself to have people sing yeah. for. during the end credits you will hear a different variation of that song again and you hear it in snippets and other parts as well yeah it's just an amazing score you, you mentioned that citizen kane won just one oscar for best original screenplay and at the time was seen as a as a failure but then, as time went on, again, not having been there, and none of us ha- having obviously been alive at the time to witness the sort of resurgence in popularity of the film, but it is said that the French New Wave directors sort of embraced the film, and they kind of started this snowball effect of Citizen Kane, getting this reputation of being an incredible, potentially lost film, or underappreciated film, that over the course of several decades has now been put in this lofty position of one of the greatest, if not the greatest films ever made. Now, what I'm going to do now is quite underhanded because I've not given you guys any time to prep for this because my thinking is if I hit you with it now on the fly and you're not given time to prepare, I think I'm going to get more honest answers from you. Anyway, that's my way of thinking. But So this is where we're going to have to wrestle with some objectivity versus subjectivity. Now, Citizen Kane is, is hailed as by many as the greatest sum of all time. Now, trying to look at this with as much of a balance of objectivity in your own personal taste I want each of you to to answer as to whether or not this is the greatest film ever made. And if not, why? Steve? Um, well, the greatest film ever made, I think that there's too many great films to have one greatest film. Yeah. These lists are very useful for cinephiles to search out new films and to discover world cinema and everything. But, you know, the, at the same time, I think this is a almost like a yoke around the, the neck of this film as well. Because, you yes. know... However, I would say it's certainly one of the greatest films ever made. And not just because of the cinephile aspects that we discussed today, mm-hmm. but also because it is very, very entertaining. Yeah. And we forget that sometimes. It goes at such a great pace. Also, you know, you've got the, the mystery that we all like to try to unravel, to try to solve, you know, and uh, we've got all our different opinions of the film and what, what exactly does Rosebud mean and, and what, who exactly was Kane but for me my wife once said that I got about 30 films in my top 10 <laughs> and that would be one of them you know I'm not going to say the greatest film so no is the answer then because the question is is it the greatest film ever made so you're <laughs> well that's what I said no. it's like a yoke around the neck of, right. uh, of cinema read in between the lines here that's a no from oh, Stephen okay. Stephen I need a bathroom break Sky <laughs> oh, well played sir well played go on then but, uh, I'll, I will think about that while I'm doing what I need to do. I'll be back in a second, okay? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you swine. Cheat. You cheat. Okay then, Stephen, what is your answer? I'm not allowed to pass, am I? No, you All can't right. pass. It's a simple yes or no. And if it's a if it's a yes, why? And if it's okay, a no, okay. why? 
I'm going to equivocate a little bit. I mean, it, it's not my favourite uh, Orson Welles film, as I've stated. I think my favourite film of his is Touch of Evil. I have this theory that certain films are kind of that I place right at the top of, of the greatest of all time are the ones where basically a, a director has had an extraordinary vision and has been able to fulfil that that vision successfully so then you could think of things like 2001 or lawrence of arabia kind of big films and yeah. it's definitely one of those i think i'm going to go with a yes and the reason i'm going to go with a yes i think is the time period in which it was made going through the experience i went through in preparation for this watching all those films from the late 30s and early 40s and then seeing citizen kane in that context made me appreciate it i think far more than i had done before and I think it's so full of cleverness, it's so full of ideas, it's so full of experimentation and, and youthful exuberance. So I think that counts in its favour. I think Wells's youth counts in its favour. And I think the fact that it's the only film that Wells made where he had both the freedom and the money at the same time, I think for that reason, I'm going to go with a yes, but I'm entirely comfortable with anybody saying otherwise and I wouldn't argue with them. See, that's the beauty of this. This is There's several reasons why I've done this. First off is to satisfy my own fiendish, sadistic streak and seeing you guys put on the spot. But secondly, because there is no right, wrong or, no. or right answer, is there? Dave? So I'm going with a no, but I would not argue with someone if they said it was the greatest film ever made. It's not like someone tells me, you know what the greatest movie ever made was? Shrek. I'm going to argue <laughs> with that person for hours because that's clearly an insane opinion. Obviously, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but Citizen Kane is such a great movie. I completely see why it routinely comes up as number one on the sight and sound list, and I have absolutely zero issue with it. Are there other movies I prefer more? Sure. Is it still a great movie? Yes. And I think it totally earns that title, even if it does put a lot of people at arm's length with the movie itself. I see exactly why it has been considered so highly by so many. So yes, you, you've taken a slightly different approach. I've put listed as in terms of favourite. Is it, is it Dave Eve's best no. film? Is it Steve Amos' Absolutely best not. film? It's not my favourite yeah. film ever made. Right. Is it even in my top right. 10? No. Is it in my top 50? Maybe. I don't even know. I, probably not, though. But I still see its merit. I see its value. And I'm not going to, may not necessarily go to bat. No, I'd probably go to bat for it if someone said, oh, it's a terrible movie because it's a great movie. But I'm not going to tell someone that says it's the greatest movie of all time. They're crazy because of X, Y, Z. Because they're not. It can be someone's greatest mm, movie of all yeah. time. It's exactly. not someone saying it's Shrek. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Dawn, you can't get Ah, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I suppose that is only fair. Right. I think if you're going to look in terms of the quality of the filmmaking, the score, the editing, the cinematography, on the whole, the performances and just everything else, and the direction, more importantly. Yes, it is one of the greatest films ever made, without doubt. And especially then, when, as you said, Stephen, earlier on, when you look at it in the context of other films from that era, undoubtedly, to go back now and, and see this film with 1941 eyes w would surely be like an absolute revelation. But, from me, my own personal thing of a film isn't just the technical aspects. In fact, more importantly for me, aside from visuals and, and directorial flair, a film is and first and foremost has to be a good or great and engaging story. And in terms of the story and what it's about, 
I can think of any number of films that I would put in a in a, a higher position in terms of the story and what that means to me and what I want to see as as entertainment, which is why I think younger me kind of struggled to like the film as much as I do now. And and again, I can still see that the problems I had with it. And one of the notes, one of my last notes, is does this film have mainstream appeal? Is is it just a film that appeals to cinephiles, which is why it kind of got lost in the ether when it first came out and and had to be rediscovered by the French New Wave directors. I can I can name any number of films where to me the story is is so much what I want to see in terms of a film and and the one I always gravitate back towards and going back to the episode that Neil and I did last year is Jaws put a gun to my head and ask me what I think the greatest film ever made is and I know people will say how can you say that I say well I can from my own personal point of view for me and and the effect that that the film has on me every time I watch it Jaws is for me the greatest film ever made for any number of reasons which I went into in in the article I wrote for the site and any number of conversations Steve that you and I and and, and loads of other people have had whereas with Citizen Kane you've got that one half of the the coin the the technical aspect is absolutely perfect and pristine and just incredible for me the story just isn't as engaging even though it's endlessly you, you can analyze it add infinitum and come up with any other different interpretations which kind of don't even contradict each other because like you know the way the film is set out it gives you all of this stuff but it doesn't press on you a judgment i think that's one of the film's beauties am it, i the only person you thinks it's entertaining it it is entertaining. Entertaining. it is very very entertaining it is but let's look at other films from that era which for me i think are better stories the third man I think the third man of this guy that's looking for his dead friend and then finds out that he's not dead and he is actually an absolute <laughs> bastard and what he's been doing is completely reprehensible and the way it turn- and the way the film ends talk about a perfect ending absolutely amazing it, Treasure of the Sierra Madre is another one which from the first moment I saw it, I thought oh my god this is just you know and, and the way the Humphrey Bogart's character goes from being yeah a bit of a scoundrel or whatever to just seeing his, his downfall bit by bit by bit to the point where he just becomes murderous and, and, and just will do anything to you know to get this gold. Stories like that grip me more from the off, whereas with this film I've had to watch it and watch it and watch it. Seven Samurai, there's another one. There's a film I went into knowing that it was already hailed as one of the greatest films ever made and I came out of it thinking, yes, absolutely, without doubt, one of the greatest films ever made. And I didn't have to go through that thing of having to watch it and watch it and watch it before I had an appreciation of it. And even now, I just don't think it is the greatest film ever made. And I, But it is one of the greatest, and it's certainly one of the most well-made films ever made. So it's all down to personal interpretation and what you actually look for in the film. And Stephen, you mentioned one of them, Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. Again, when I think of what are the greatest films ever made, Lawrence of Arabia is going to be there. Mm. Films that sort of I will always have a personal connection to, like The Great Escape, yeah. which is a film I saw very God, I think I must have been maybe seven or eight when I first saw it and it's just always stuck with me and there's scenes in that film that when I see them have a profound effect on me it's like it's like the motorbike uh, chase scene and the, you know the jumping over the fence or the I see it jumping over the fence he doesn't get over but every time I watch it I think he's going to make it this mm. time and it literally just fills me with a euphoria that it's one of those special films mm. to me Citizen Kane. You, when you mentioned then, Dave, that it, it probably wouldn't be in your top 50, me and Steve kind of exchanged a sort of, oh, really? Thinking of it, if I was to sit down and list my own personal favourite 50 films, I don't know if Citizen Kane would be in there because I know I could probably mention 50 other films, certainly, that I love more than this film. 
that's and that's a big piece. I, I I think there's probably very few people, at least in this day and age, that are going to have that same emotional connection with Citizen Kane mm. as they would with any of the other movies that you mentioned. Because, and I think part of it is because many people go into this for academic reasons. Mm. They watch Citizen Kane because it's regarded as the greatest of all time. Yeah. Let's see what it's all about. Most people are going to be looking at it from a very analytical perspective. And that's not always what movies are about. Sure, it's great to, to dig yeah. in there. It's great to analyze movies. You get a greater understanding and a deeper appreciation from them, from having them that critical perspective. But that doesn't always make something your favorite. I mean, I'm looking at my own letterbox and the movies that I've watched from the 1940s, and I'm at least seeing four movies from the 30s that I like more. The Third Man being one of them. Uh, the Shop Around the Corner. It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Black Narcissus. Yeah. All of the uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Those are five, at least, that I prefer from that same decade to Citizen Kane. At the same time, that does not make it any less of a film or any worse of a film. That's just my preference. I'm going to have a deeper connection with those simply because of who I am and the movies themselves. But if if I can jump in, I think one of the one of the issues is that Citizen Kane is really a psychological study as much as it is a story. Mm-hmm. And I think in that way, you know, you, you don't engage with the story moments so much. And I think that was, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the, the film was not commercially successful. It was a sort of minor flop. I think it lost about $150,000. And that was in large part because of the, the Hearst sort of blacklist on the film. But it also may have been that it was not a film that appealed to the masses. You know, that's also one of the reasons why it may have lost money. I will say, though, that I, I watched it a few times in, in preparation and I watched it uh, yesterday. And when I approached it, as a psychological study, I genuinely found myself completely fascinated and riveted and entertained by it. You know, that question of where it falls in terms of favourite films, I'm unable to answer that question. And the reason I can't is I think it's exactly what Dave just said, which is that I've always approached it from the point of view of, uh, from an academic point of view, that's how it was introduced to me. So I don't think of it in terms of how much I like it. I think of it in terms of how much I admire it. That's a problem, actually. That's a real problem. It is, yeah. And that's exactly the problem I've got with it. I, I appreciate this film. If, if you were to mark a film out of 10, in terms of the appreciation you have for it, this film has to have a 10. Mm. When I look at it in terms of my own enjoyment of it, the, the way I judge a film is everything gets a 10 and then you work your way down taking points off for things you don't like about it. And there is one thing I don't like about this mm. film. And it's the fact that so much of the story towards the end focuses on his relationship with the actual on-screen story with Susan Alexander. And I think... There's other stuff I want to see here, which I I feel I haven't seen enough enough of. You know, you mentioned how much screen time Joseph Cotton has, but I don't actually feel as if we get enough of the relationship between Kane and Leland. Mm. And it's just something I've always found myself wanting with the mm. film. Those scenes that go on with, and, and they are hard to watch. You know, she is like a, an animal trapped in a cage, isn't she? And, and the, you know, the way she's sort of haranguing him about how he sees her and how he's treating her, it's not easy to watch. And I think maybe that's you know, part of the reason why I don't particularly gravitate towards those scenes. And I actually feel as if they, for me, drag the film down. But again, you know, this is the beauty of film discussion. There's so many different ways to interpret it. There's so many different ways to gauge a film. It is one of the greatest films ever made, without mm. doubt. But, you know, to answer the question that I so fiendishly threw at you guys, for me, it's not the greatest film ever made. And I, I think that um, what I said earlier on about you know, the, this um, label of greatest film of all time, that's go, always going to weigh heavily on it. Hmm. Now, for me, maybe it's because I've, I've seen it quite, I'd, I've probably seen it about 20, 30 times. Hmm. Yeah. And for me, quite a few years ago, I stopped thinking of it from an academic sense, yeah. even though that's where I... Um, watched it for as well because it was on that BFI list and I've started watching it as entertainment as well yeah. and that's why I think it, it is one of the, my favourite films Yeah, 
but it's so easy i think that this label is so heavy on it yes that and it does push it down and it does affect the way that we look at it that's it that is the point i'm trying to make here the fact that this film has been given this label and it's worn it for such a long time now in everyone's eyes that dave you and i have discussed with reverence vertigo mm-hmm. but i do not think that i don't i don't even think it's the best hitchcock film it's but the thing that these two films have got in common is my appreciation for these films is increasing as each year goes by yeah mm-hmm. There was a time where I, I was I was quick to dismiss Vertigo as ah, do you know what? For me that's sort of mid to high tier Hitchcock. It's not high tier. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was exactly the same because it, yeah. it is quite slow in many yeah. parts. Whereas now I watch it and it's quite hypnotic. Whereas it's actually gone up and North by Northwest, which was previously on the top spot, has actually gone down a little bit. And that's more or less just entertainment. Yeah, and I, I think I said this in our episode. Vertigo is my favorite Hitchcock, and I prefer it to Citizen Kane. I, I think that the sight and sound list, mm. I, I think that ranking of putting Vertigo above Citizen Kane is not wrong. But again, it's it's so subjective. You see, and, I, I prefer yeah, Vertigo, but I I think Citizen Kane's a better film, which is which is the crux of the problem, isn't it? Like, if it was favorites, I'd like what, what defines that better. is it. But which one do I admire more? It's probably Kane. I enjoy to tell my wife's experience with Citizen Kane. It's a movie that she had never wanted to watch because of the the mark that it holds and the uh, that that badge. And she watched it once because her brother put it on. She said, "I'm gonna, I'll watch it. I'll fall asleep." And she was enraptured. She was completely engaged with the entire movie from start to end because she she took it for what it is. She wasn't trying to analyze it. She wasn't trying to see if it would hold up to something. She was just watching it, expecting to fall asleep and found herself just brought into it. And I think that that's one of the best ways you can kind of see it, almost expecting not to enjoy it, not going in expecting it to be bad or anything or expecting to make fun of it, but then just kind of being surprised by it because it can be surprising. It can be entertaining because it is entertaining and enjoyable, even if you get trapped into looking at it from a purely analytical perspective. I would say this, that the last time I watched it, that closing shot, um, well, it's a series of shots, a closing sequence where Thompson, they're walking through all of the detritus of his life, all the packages and the statues and everything. You know, Thompson says something like, you know, I don't think any one word can explain a man's life. And then, you know, the kind of almost uh, ghostly exploratory camera pulls back and surveys everything and gradually closes in and rose on rosebud and then rosebud is thrown into the flames and the bernard uh, bernard herman music sort of soars i i having already watched the film many times not as many as steve but more than 10 i i honestly tingles i you know goosebumps it, re- yes. it really caught me um so i think the film even yeah. with that weight uh, around its neck of greatest film of all time i think it still has the power to capture you and you know capture you and and make yeah. you feel things I, I i am entertained by it i will i will say that yeah and, and just to clarify look you know i i love this film deep I, I i'm just trying to kind of shine a spotlight on this mm-hmm. label that it's been given and, and how different people can interpret it differently and the effect then it can have on the on the viewing mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. of the film i I'll, I'll say this as just my own personal sort of end note on citizen kane it is one of those films that, like you, you mentioned. Sh- I, I, I love Shrek. Dave. I actually really do. I, I must. I, I really do love Shrek. I think it's a really entertaining film. I think you know the, the sort of sense of humor and the way it tackles fairy tales is is very well done. I do like it, but it's like you say, it's a good. It's it's not. It's not one of those films that's ever going to be up for the biggest greatest film ever made. But one of those films that definitely is worthy of those of that title is Citizen mm-hmm. Kane. And that's why I just said it's not Citizen Kane because that's what people say now. Yes, it's oh, I really you know, like enjoy that film. It's yeah. not Citizen say, oh, Kane. Like so and so is the Citizen Kane of action films, or yeah. you know, it's the Citizen Kane of romantic comedies. Yeah. It, it's 
now become the benchmark by which you gauge the quality of a film. I, I will say this. The scene in um, The Simpsons, the gag in The Simpsons, when she goes to see, uh, she sees the Kane from Citizen Kane. Remember that? <laughs> that is the Citizen Kane of gangs. Yeah. <laughs> I personally think that Shrek is the Citizen Kane of movies. <laughs> I think the Shrek one is the Citizen Kane of Shrek movies. Yes, there we go. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there you go. It's, look, it's had a triple purpose. It's highlighted the fact that the film carries this heavy burden. It's also me being a bit sneaky. And it's also, in a way, given a, a nice sort of way to give our own final thoughts on the film. So, gents, but anything else that we've not mentioned you'd like to cover? Can I just say one thing, right? The failure of Citizen Kane, because, of course, you know, Hearst offered a million dollars to a film to, for RKO to destroy the... Yes. And if they had RKO taken that, they would have made a bigger profit because they didn't make one. No. But because the failure of Citizen Kane, RKO's whole uh, structure and outlook and uh, policies to, um, changed within and because of that they hired Val Luton and Cat People is one of my favourite films as well another of my 30 top 10s that wouldn't have been made if it wasn't yeah. for Citizen King so uh, that's part of the legacy which I think is should be applauded there you go hmm. I, they I changed wanted... the stationery didn't they they changed the stationery when Wells was fired on the Arco stationery said something like showmanship in place of genius they, <laughs> they really they really rubbed that in <laughs> wow <laughs> I, I just wanted to talk about that one opera shot where, where we go into the rafters because I, I find it amazing. Oh, that's one, a great shot. And two, what's also amazing is that it's three different shots stitched together and you'd never even know it from how fluidly it moves together. And I just love that the way that we kind of see this person's failure other than hearing it is by going way up above and just seeing the judgment from these two like stage hands just like, Ugh. you don't they don't say anything. You just see them shaking their heads and you know everything you need to about the Susan Alexander character and exactly how much this is going to be a bad moment for Charles Foster Kane. And actually, that's that's a, a brilliant point. And uh, I, I think it, it reminds me of just how many special effects are in the movie. That's something that, that we haven't really discussed, which is that I think something like 50% of the shots in the film have special effects in them. Yeah. And uh, they, they were so determined to cut costs that instead of constructing sets, they had, you know, they used the optical printer, they used matte paintings. And it's actually quite difficult to spot. It's one of the one of the great achievements of the film, really. And, uh, you know, we well, one of the things that sort of Wells said about the film and Toland was that they were trying to create a sense of realism through deep focus but actually the whole film is like one giant magic show you know there are so many trick shots in the film you know the special effects are so good that they're actually quite hard to spot you know which one always amazes me mm. the shot where, where they're discussing the staff at the rival newspaper Mm. And how Charlie Kane's plan to get that level of quality on his paper is to hire all of them. We oh, go yeah. from a picture of that staff and it fades into a live action shot to this day. I don't know how they pulled that off. It's perfect. It would be difficult to do it today is, yeah. with the with the uh, level of special effects we have available to us. And they did it then yeah. probably with just like, uh, here's a still frame that we used. Let's do that as an overlay and let's see if we can get it lined up. They had to do that by hand and make it work. That's nothing short of impressive. Oh yeah, it's you know it's the film's use of deep focus as well. The scene where where Kane's finishing Leland's review and he fires him is, is two separate shots. One of Kane on the left and another of Leland on the right with Bernstein in the far background. And the focus is just absolutely perfect. 
no obvious seams of any kind and you'd think that you know modern restoration high definition would expose those but nothing is given away and it all holds up perfectly 70 years and i say 70 years and by that i mean the 70 years from the point of view of the version that mm. i watched which was the blu-ray that was released for the 70th anniversary in 2011 it just looks flawless there was no giveaway at all it, the citizen kane of it's like that scene in the shining of in the shining when you're looking down on the uh, the, oh, maze, on the maze yeah. and it's only the center portion and the camera is is is, mo- is zooming in it's it's, it's pan or is it or is it panning out i think it's zooming but, in but you know the camera's moving yeah. and that center composited shot of the the, the live action bit and then the, the fake maze around it just completely matches perfectly and it there is not a single visible seam and it's just like that in any number of scenes in well, this film the the opening um, newsreel charles foster kane is dead in uh, yeah. times square that was a, comp- a composite as well yeah you know, i mean you, you think it would be cheaper just to get a camera take to times square and tell him to change yeah time to change yeah. it yeah but no that was a special effect it's, it's amazing amazing so do you think in 20 years' time, when it's 100 years old, it'll still hold up? Oh, it, 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 it's going to be, yeah. But we're 80 years on now, and we're still talking about you know the film with, with reverie, just like any other number of film podcasts are. And yeah, I, I just think it's it's one for, one for the ages. We're still impressed, aren't we? I think yeah. that, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, though, for me, I am going to be way more impressed with a special effect that doesn't 100% work, that's 80 years old, than a special effect from mm-hmm. 2021 that looks too clean because I just know they did it in a computer. Yeah, Indeed. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Any other final thoughts that uh, you've not already given on Citizen Kane? It's a good movie. <laughs> it's a good, good movie. movie. It's a very good movie. I give it movie. one yeah. thumbs up. <laughs> it's well. I was just going to reiterate what we said, I think, and what, perhaps what Steve would say is try and put its reputation off to one side and just watch it. Yeah. Difficult though that is to do, yeah, that is definitely the best way to tackle this film, if you can, yeah. Ignore the reputation, just watch it for what it is, which is just an amazingly well-made film. Shrek 1 of movies. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So, gents, uh, we finally got this one in the bag. Hopefully there won't be any technical glitches now and I'll lose the file. Can you imagine? You'd never forgive me. The great lost uh, podcast episode. We, I think, we will, we'll definitely all have to get back together and, um, you know, maybe discuss uh, a few other awesome Wells. Citizen Kane yes. too. <laughs> well, yeah. I, you know, I was just thinking of that. Can you actually remake Citizen Kane? No, no. it's one of the films. It, it's one of the films which I you always, can't. when I was younger, I always used ET as a reference that you would never. There's, there's no sequel to be made of ET, and Citizen Kane is one of those films that. No remake, no sequel, nothing. That's it. The story's done. There's nothing else to be said. It's untouchable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the few films out there. Yeah. They could remake just about anything. Yeah. But I don't think they could do this. Yeah. So, gentlemen, uh, where can people reach you on social media if they want to hit you up and, and talk awesome well, Citizen Kane, or anything film or television related? Stephen? Uh, well, my Twitter account is that SJ Saunders, which I think is probably the only place you could reach me. So, if you want to follow me or chat with me, that would be the place to go. You can find me on Twitter at Cinema versus Dave. That is Cinema vs Dave. Same handle for Letterboxd as well. I update that occasionally. Uh, any uh, podcast appearances either of you going to be on soon or, or, or recently recorded? I, I'll, I'll go first since I'm still talking, <laughs> was recently <laughs> on an episode of Shoot the Piano Player, a French New Wave podcast talking about Jean-Luc Godard's contempt. And previous to that, I was on Wrong Reel with uh, James Hancock and with Marcus Pinn talking about the works of Jean Cocteau. Both of those are great episodes. I don't think I have anything upcoming to, to plug other than this great Citizen Kane episode for, for this podcast you guys <laughs> might be uh, familiar with, Film 89. Steve, what about you? Uh, yeah, Twitter is the best place uh, for me too. It's at Welsh Bluesman. I do update uh, 
letterbox as well, Steve Nemos. But I tend to never quite have the time to review everything. I just tend to give them a star rating. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. You can find all of us, that's the rest of the Film 89 crew, at Film 89 UK on Twitter and Facebook. If you want to email us, hit us up at admin at film89.co.uk. We're always still looking out for episode suggestions, listener questions. We are going to go back to doing them uh, at some point in the immediate future, I promise you. I think that's about it. Uh, Thank you, everyone, who sent us um, lots of very complimentary tweets and messages about our last couple of episodes. The Taxi Driver episode is already, uh, I think, our second most downloaded episode of 2021. Yeah, we're just incredibly grateful for all the kind words and support that we get from all of our friends and followers on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else. So please, uh, if you haven't already, give us a like and a subscribe button. More importantly, if you could, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That would continue to do us no end of good. Uh, I think that's it, guys. It's been a fantastic discussion with the three of you. And Steve, you and me recorded in the flesh together for the first time in 18 months. <laughs> My know. God. Brilliant. COVID. Let's hope there's no more uh, lockdowns pending because I really am done with it, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, there you go, guys. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, we'll be back hopefully very soon. But as we always say, Stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly, stay classy. We're out of here. Sweet.